2: Bad Dad, Rad Dad, where we look for better dads one movie at a time. I'm Kylie. And I'm Elliot. And we're going to talk about the movies we watched this week before crowning the baddest dad and raddest dad of them all. And as always, dad is an energy, not a gender.
1: I'm still alive. I'm still here. Oh, that's good. Um, still getting over being sick. Uh, definitely turned a big quarter from, uh, last episode. But we're still being careful. Still masking. Still being precautious. Um... Yeah, just doing our best. It sucks. But we're we're get, we're getting through it and it's going to be great. Really Again, just to reiterate, worst week ever. Not only was it your birthday week, but Barbenheimer is something we've both been excited for for so long. And uh just to have it coincide at the same week as getting sick. I hate it.
2: I hate it as well, but on that note, We are going to do a Barbenheimer exclusive episode that is going to come out just a few days from the time that you're listening to this. If you're listening to this on the Thursday that it drops, we're going to release our Barbenheimer episode on Sunday, July 30th, and we have a poll going as of right now, which is Sunday, um, on whether it should have spoilers or not, and it's looking like people want spoilers. So it'll be a... Not a deep dive... It'll be like a regular episode, but we Mm -hmm. might talk a little bit more specifically about things in Barbie and in Oppenheimer, and it'll be just on those two films, and it'll come out on Sunday, July 30th.
1: So get out there, experience the Barbenheimer.
2: If you haven't already.
1: And uh, join us on Sunday when we drop our Barbenheimer exclusive episode. We watched a lot of Smackaroonies this week. Six of them. We're going to cover them all right here. And I kicked it off with a mystery movie pick. I chose the 1996 action adventure thriller. Two of those are your least favorite combo (laughs) when it comes to films. But I chose The Rock. It was directed by Michael Bay and a whole slew of writers on this thing. There's uh, David Westberg and Douglas Cook, who wrote the story. Uh, They also wrote the screenplay along with Mark Rosner. It stars the late and great Sean Connery as John Mason Nicholas Cage as Stanley Goodspeed and Ed Harris as General Francis X. Hummel. Synopsis, a mild-mannered chemist and ex-con must lead the counter-strike when a rogue group of military men led by a renegade general threaten a nerve gas attack from Alcatraz against San Francisco. When I'm sick, I like to watch stupid, silly action movies because it's just really simple, real basic. And just fun and dumb. So I wanted to throw this on because I was sick. What do you think of The Rock?
2: Okay, when this first started, I was not here for it. First of all, the opening scenes look like it's going to be a war movie. Mm -hmm. And I was like, what war movie are we watching? And I know I've been kind of in a war book era. Mm -hmm. Like I read The Things I Carried by Tim O'Brien. And then I read The Wars by Timothy Finley. But... Those are anti war, war books. And I was like, what war garbage are you making me watch? <laughs> then it says directed by Michael Bay. And I'm like, the guy who did Transformers, Elliot, <laughs> what are you making me watch? <laughs> um, so I was a little unsure, but uh, I liked it.
1: Which surprised me because I could not, I felt like I couldn't get a read on you throughout the movie. So I'm glad I netted out with you, enjoying the time. More than not enjoying the time.
2: So what I'll say is, for me at least, and I know you've seen this movie a lot, it was kind of like two movies. There's all the mm. stuff before they get into Alcatraz and then there's the Alcatraz stuff. I didn't much care for anything before they got to Alcatraz.
1: Like our, our protagonists get into Alcatraz. Correct. And it it's so funny because I haven't watched this in such a long time. And I watched this a lot as a kid. Probably too much, I'll say. But... It's like our bad guys get to Alcatraz and then we just leave them there for what feels like at least an hour of the movie while we set up our good guys eventually getting to Alcatraz. Yeah. This movie's pretty long. It's pretty long winded. It
2: is too long. That's the thing. I I enjoyed it watching it because I'd never seen it before, but I think I would get really bored on a rewatch when I know where it's going. There is a car chase that should be taken out entirely or reduced significantly (laughs) And it would have improved the movie for me. I just find like the part before Sean Connery and Nicolas Cage are like properly doing what they're going to do. It's like a different film. It's like a like, let's figure out who this guy is. And like, I I just feel like that part could have been for me reduced.
1: Mm -hmm. No, I agree. Revisiting it now just could have been tightened up a little bit more.
2: Once it gets to the like Alcatraz stuff and the more like contained narrative and like contained set, I found it pretty thrilling. Yeah. Um, and we're in like a Nicolas Cage era right now. We watched two Nicolas Cage movies this week. And we were going to watch three because we had plans with a friend, with some friends, mm-hmm. um, which we canceled because you're sick. Um, I kind of like them.
0: Yeah. I think
2: think he's funny I think he's just like so over the top and silly and I think if you look at him from that camp perspective he's pretty fun yeah Uh, he's got so many lines in this that are like gut-bustingly funny
1: yeah there's only one person that can Nicolas Cage and that's Nicolas Cage there's not very many actors that have that sort of eccentricity to them that just works across many movies (laughs)
2: Yeah, it was really fun. And I think having like Sean Connery as a straight man to that. um, (laughs) Yeah, it was pretty, pretty great. I was a little disappointed in Hummel's story because the movie is set up with him Mm -hmm. and they set him up in a really interesting way as almost like a Thanos type villain where you're like, I don't agree with your methods, but I understand your argument. Mm -hmm. I understand why you're doing this. And I felt like that was really dropped and like, and that's where it becomes like, I'm not that I've seen that many Michael Bay movies, but where it becomes what like I associate with my perception of what a Michael Bay movie would be, mm-hmm. which is action over story. Yeah. Um, And I really wish that there had been some resolution to like the concerns that Hummel has that seem very legitimate.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's just kind of like, I don't want to say anything. I don't want to spoil it, but I agree with you. It, it feels it feels like there could have been a more complex conversation or way that that story unfolds that could speak to some of the... Because I think some of the things that he's bringing up are valid and important. I like the idea of it being a Thanos argument. I agree with that. Yeah, it it kind of drops a little bit in favor of let's have another action set piece. And some of those are really good. I mean, the whole... The whole, the whole, a big part of why I wanted to show you this movie was I thought you'd like the stuff with the gas. I did. Oh my (laughs)
2: goodness, the pearls were so pretty. Yeah, it was like the Matrix in beautiful glass beads. (laughs) Beautiful, dangerous glass beads.
1: And I felt like they were a unique threat in terms of weapons. Uh, You know, I'm saying this before we go and see Oppenheimer, which is which is about about one of the biggest weapons the most destructive and terrifying weapons in the world but instead of it just being a really big bomb like it's this scientifically engineered weapon that is meant to do some really fucked up shit to the human body and there's some really great body horror stuff in it that yeah is done really really well
2: honestly it could have been a little bit more considering the runtime, but <laughs> yeah when it does it i really liked it
1: give us more gas
2: did you know this is criterion
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. That
2: yeah. is a wild to me. Um I feel like
1: there because Armageddon was as well. I feel like there was a period uh, in Criterion's past where it's just like if something was popular and a lot of people liked it at a time, they're like, oh well obviously it's gotta go into the well, collection.
2: I mean, we've talked about this on the show before. I think it was in our episode that we did um in Halifax last year, but like when we did House, um, where one of the questions was like, that we had was how does a film become a Criterion film? And I'm going to read from their website again. We've read this before, but I know we have some new listeners or it's been a long time since that episode. So on the Criterion website, on their FAQ, it says, how do you decide which films receive the Criterion treatment? The answer is... We aim to reflect the breadth of filmed expression. We try not to be restrictive or snobby about what kinds of films are appropriate. An auteur classic, a Hollywood blockbuster, and an independent B-horror film all have to be taken on their own terms. All we ask is that each film in the collection be an exemplary film of its kind. Of course, we can't just pick movies and put them out. The process of getting the rights to release a film can take years. Even if we want a film, we can't work on it unless the film owners grant us the right to do so. So what they'd be saying is, for an action-adventure... Hollywood blockbuster those films Armageddon and The Rock in their own right are exemplary mm-hmm. in that genre and I would agree I mean it's not my genre which is why I'm like shorten it <laughs> look at the complicated stuff a little bit more but that's because of my own personal tastes right I can see how someone who just loves action-adventure movies like this is a really successful action-adventure movie
1: yeah no totally I I and I'm not shitting on this movie completely or Armageddon. I think that the fact that they were included, and I I think that they're archived now, like you can't get them unless Mm. you dig really deep. But uh, that makes sense. And I appreciate that they celebrated those films. I mean, Parasite is no independent film, and that very quickly got a criterion release, but that's because it is just this really notable. I guess it's not really a blockbuster, but it is this really big, well-known, notable film of the time. Uh, So it deserves to be in there as much as The Rock, I guess.
2: A question I had for you when we were watching it was, did they actually film in Alcatraz and you didn't have an answer for me? No. Do you know the answer now? No. They did. Right. Almost entirely, which the studio didn't want. Um, But according to IMDb Trivia, which I've learned this week is not always reliable, but I hope that this is true, that Michael Bay insisted that they shoot in the real Alcatraz because, quote, I got to shoot on this island because this island is so fucking bitchin'.
1: Jesus Christ. (laughs) What a 90s thing to say. (laughs) I got to shoot on this island. This
2: island is bitchin'. Um, Also, (laughs) apparently, I think this story is really cute. Because I quite like Sean Connery, despite knowing very little about him and having seen very few of his films. I guess Michael Bay and Disney, that's who made the film? Warner Brothers? I don't know.
1: Uh, I think it's like Bonavista or something. So like Disney.
2: Yeah, Disney. Okay. They were having some tensions um, and they were wanting to get involved. And so Michael Bay was going to go have a big meeting with them about it. and It was going to be quite difficult. And Sean Connery was about to go golfing but he was a producer on the film and he's like in his golf attire and he sees Michael Bay and he's like where are you going and Michael Bay's like oh i'm about to have a very like difficult conversation with the studio and Sean Connery's like i'm coming <laughs> and then he goes to the studio and he insists that quote Michael Bay is doing a good job and should be left alone leave the boy alone <laughs> leave the boy alone that's some rad dad energy
1: that's great i and i i'm just picturing Sean Connery in, leave the boy alone in like a <laughs> in like a polo
2: With his golf bag. He's just like like, ready to go. He's like, you made me come here instead of golfing. Yeah. To tell, to scold you, to leave my child alone.
1: And he's Scottish too. So I imagine a kilt.
2: Probably a kilt. Yeah. Yeah. And a little jaunty cap.
1: Yeah. And like on one shoulder, he slung his uh, golf clubs on the other one set of bagpipes.
2: Absolutely. (laughs) Um, One last piece of trivia that when I read it really didn't surprise me. There is a famous director that we often have complicated feelings about who was an uncredited screenwriter on this film. No. Do you know who it is?
1: Complicated feelings.
2: Think of Nicolas Cage's lines in this movie and think about which screenwriter. Joss Whedon? Nope. Good guess, though. Complicated uh, feelings. I don't know. Quentin Tarantino. Really? Really? It tracked for me as soon as I read that. I'm like, oh, yeah, this script feels like feels like it has like some essence of him in it. Like he's not fully in it, but
1: aren't you a chemical freak? I'm a chemical super freak, actually.
2: Yeah. Like that feels <laughs> that feels like the kind of Quentin Tarantino work that's going on in Grindhouse, mm-hmm. you know, when, or like um, from Dust Till Dawn, like that kind of thing. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes sense to me. And honestly, I thought a lot of the dialogue was really funny. So
1: yeah, they like some of the shit they make Sean Connery say is stuff you would never imagine Sean Connery saying, which makes it pretty hilarious. And then Nicholas Cage just adding his flair to stuff is really great. You know, I have complicated feelings about Ed Harris just because of have you ever seen the video of him doing press for a history of violence? and he kind of like loses his cool at one of them and he just like starts getting really violent and like throws a glass and stuff and it just gets gets really uncomfortable
2: uh if I have I don't remember it and it sounds really uncomfortable and like I would hate it
1: and i don't know if there's anything else surrounding ed harris i haven't i haven't looked that deeply at it but that aside i i actually quite like ed harris as an actor i think he can turn in some really effective performances. I'm thinking more recently of him in The Lost Daughter.
2: Yep. Yeah, Um, yep. Westworld too, you know.
1: Westworld. I like him here as well. And I I think and I think that's the thing too is that I think that he does a really good job here. And like we were saying, I just want to go a little bit deeper.
2: Okay, this is funny. I was I I just looked up his Wikipedia to see if it says anything about him being like pee pee poo-poo. And it doesn't. That Mm -hmm. doesn't mean he's not, but Mm -hmm. it doesn't. But what it does say is that New York Magazine once described him as, quote, the thinking woman's sex symbol. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) If you are an intelligent woman, Ed Harris is your sex symbol. (laughs) That's weird. That's really weird. I'm a thinking
1: woman, and Ed Harris rattles my bones.
2: (laughs) (laughs) And if you're a thinking woman, he'll rattle yours too. (laughs)
1: Get in line. Ed Harris. Thinking ladies.
2: (laughs) Weird, weird, weird. Uh this is not a thinking movie. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, not really. I last thing I'll say about this, the music kind of slaps. And as a kid, there's some more emotional um pieces throughout that used to like kind of get me welled up in certain in certain parts of the film. But there's one particular piece in this that is very Pirates of the Caribbean-y. Yeah,
2: and I I mean, props to me. I was like, did Hans Zimmer do the score? Cause there's a bit that like it's almost the same as the but it like doesn't quite soar the way that like the Pirates of the Caribbean score does. It kind of goes back down again. Um, but
1: it kind of makes you want to see Sean Connery run like Jack Sparrow.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, zip line his shackled hands and <laughs> um and then as he turns back, be like you'll remember that you'll always remember this as the day that you almost caught John Patrick Mason. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh yeah. Uh, you know, this, uh, scratched the itch that I had, uh, and I'm glad that we got to watch it. Wouldn't revisit it a ton. If...
2: I didn't hate it, but I don't want to watch it like every year or anything.
1: Yeah. I think, you know, maybe in 10 years, if I'm sick again, <laughs> we'll throw it, we'll throw it on. Uh, how'd it make you feel?
2: Honestly, it was like pretty thrilling, silly fun. Yeah. You?
1: Uh, Could have enjoyed a bit more if there was a little bit less.
2: Okay. We went in a very different direction. If you're a thinking person, this next movie is for you.
1: W- woman or otherwise.
2: So after you said to me, I like to watch dumb action movies when I'm sick. I was like, well, let me pick.
1: Let me pick the headiest. Yeah.
2: Most. I did, to be fair, I asked you ahead of time if it was okay. There's a movie that I really, really, really have been wanting to watch, and it's on Mubi, and I've got a like free trial of Mubi right now that's about to end at the end of July. Um, in fact, it was supposed to end at the end of June, but when I went to cancel it, they were like, no, do you want another free month? And I was like, why, yes,
1: please. They're like, wait a second, are you a thinking woman? Please stay. <laughs>
2: please stay, we have thinking woman movies. <laughs> <laughs> they might not star Red star Harris, but... um." <laughs> so this had kind of been rattling in my mind is like, I should, we should watch this before the, I cancel our free subscription. Um, but then I saw that it was also the director's birthday and I'm like, perfect. A fellow cancer. (laughs) I have the free trial. I asked you if you could do something a little bit slower. And we watched uncle Boon me who can recall his past lives, a 2010 fantasy drama film directed and written by Apichapong Resetical and written by Pra uh, well, him and also uh Pra Pra uh, it stars as Boonmi Thanapa Sasimunar, as Jen Genjira Pongpa, as Tong, Saktakau Boodi uh and his way Natakarn, Apawong. Uh, The synopsis for this is dying of kidney disease, a man spends his last somber days with family, including the ghost of his wife and a forest spirit who used to be his son on a rural (laughs) northern... As you do. As you do. On a rural northern Thailand farm. So yes, it was Hetty. You were still pretty sick at this point. (laughs) But I was locked in. (laughs) But you were. What did you think of Uncle Boonmi who can recall his past lives?
1: Uh, I had no idea what this was about, but after a certain character shows up on screen, I'm like, oh, that's the poster. I've seen this artwork Mm. before. It's very striking. This was very special. It was hauntingly and mesmerizingly beautiful. You likened it to like three directors, which I thought were very good in terms of the filmmaking and and the feelings that we got from this movie. I didn't write them down. I forgot to write them down, but who were they? Koganada,
2: um, Yeah, I said Koganada, in terms of like this kind of thoughtful, reflective, lingering warmth that also has like a depth and complexity of feeling. Uh, Kelly Reichert in terms of like slow cinema and like using the landscape and the soundscape of the landscape. And then Lynch in terms of like just jarring imagery.
0: Dreamlike. And- Yes, yeah,
2: surreal. Now, I don't always feel good doing that. It was more of like a point of reference for me because I feel like being like, oh, he's like Reichhardt and Lynch and Koganada actually reduces the complexity and individuality of um, uh, Worsetakola as his own filmmaker.
1: Yeah, I hear you. I wanted to bring, I I agree with you. I wanted to bring that up because I think that if this is your first step, first time hearing that name, or first step into the filmography I feel like if any of those three directors resonate with you Mm. at all I would say that this is something that you should seek out
2: yeah I would agree I was kind of like oh there's I'm seeing elements that I really love in other filmmakers but put together in a new way and I mean Resetical has been working for a really long time so it's certainly not that like he's not doing his own thing in fact like this film is unlike anything I've seen Mm -hmm. while I was like, Oh, there's elements of it that I see in the types of films I like. Like it is, this film demands patience of you. And Mm -hmm. if you don't have the patience to give it, then you're probably not going to enjoy it. But if you allow it the time and patience that it's asking, damn, will it reward you?
0: Mm -hmm.
2: But I could see myself, on like the wrong day and time, or if I saw this in the theater and there was a pee pee poo poo audience mm. being unable to like really sink into what it's offering me. Mm-hmm. But like when I was watching this, it kind of drew me in and the, and the longer I watched the more it drew me in and it just like wouldn't let go of me. Even after the film was done, I just like couldn't stop thinking about it.
1: Yeah. It's been sitting with me as I've been isolated in my little room. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've, I've, gone back to this film in my mind several several times and my initial reaction as soon as the film ended and I sat with it for a little bit was and I said this to you I said I don't think I fully understood it but I think I loved it
2: yeah and this was this was the thing and we've talked about this both just together on our own but also I'm sure we've talked about this at some point in the show there are some films that when I don't understand them, I feel frustrated because I feel like the filmmaker is trying to be like, ha ha, if you don't get this, you're not smart. And so I'm thinking of like a tenet, Yes. right? And then there's films where I'm like, I didn't understand it. I'll probably never understand it. The filmmaker is never going to tell me what it meant, but, it, but I understand what it meant to me. And that'd be something like Eraserhead, mm-hmm. where I'm like, I connect my own deep desire not to have children and my own reluctances and fears about like the family unit. I see that in the film and David Lynch would tell me, and that's right. However you feel about the film is correct. But then there's a film like this where I'm like, I have no idea what it meant and I don't care because it gave me feelings. And I, I can't even explain what those feelings are, Mm -hmm. but I had a like connection to it in an emotional way. And so I don't care what it meant.
1: Yeah. No, totally. It, it pulled similar emotions. And I, I, I don't want this to just be a, a keep comparing kind of thing. But even though it was less abstract and dealt less in the surreal, it pulled similar emotions for me as Rice Boy Sleeps.
2: Oh, okay, yeah.
1: And I love that. I loved, I loved the experience of this movie because it was very genre bendy and it achieved that even through things as simple as sound design yeah where things felt uneasy or subtly disquieting but it's just through sound it's not even necessarily what you're seeing on screen and it's it's so affecting
2: there's That's- a couple um like so first of all there's the rotten tomatoes like critical consensus and then a film critic who I think they've said what I felt better than I could. So I'm just going to quote them. Mm. But the Rotten Tomatoes Critical Consensus. First of all, this was the Palm d'Or winner, which is like, I didn't know that. And I was like, whoa, we
1: watched two of those this week.
2: We did. Um, and the other one, I was also surprised to hear that that was a Palm d'Or winner. <laughs> yeah. Um, so the Rotten Tomatoes Critical Consensus is lingorious and deeply enigmatic. Palm d'Or winner Uncle Boon Me represents an original take on the ghosts that haunt us. Now I'm all about the ghosts that haunt us. So <laughs> yeah. I liked that one, but also this one I thought was really, really beautiful. So it's from the film critic so- uh, Sukdev Sandhu, and they say, "'It's barely a film, more a floating world. "'To watch mm-hmm. it is to feel many things, bombed, seduced, amused, mystified. "'There are many elements of this film that remain elusive and secretive, "'but that's a large part of its appeal.' Vercytical without ever trading in stock images of oriental inscrutability successfully conveys the subtle but important otherworldliness of this part of Thailand.
1: I really like that. I The idea of it being a floating world. Yeah, I
2: was just really taken with that language because that feels correct to how my experience of watching the movie was.
1: Yeah. And it's, it just sits you in this floating world. Like uh, many of the sequences in this. Are longer, lingering moments of people just talking, people walking, people experiencing the the landscape or the setting around them. It's really con- contemplative and quiet in moments, and like I said, disquieting in moments.
2: So this is the other cool thing. There are a couple things that werecetical has said about the film that are like known. And I want to watch it again now, knowing this. So the film um, was shot on 16mm, and there's six reels in it, and each one is a different cinema style. Subtly. Like, it's not meant to feel sharply shifting, and so I don't know if this is all of them. There are th- four that are that are mentioned in uh, what I found online. So old cinema with stiff acting and classical staging. Documentary style cinema, costume drama, and quote from the director my kind of film when you see long takes of animals and people driving. <laughs> um, but that it's like got these shifts in film style. And he said that the film itself is about dying traditions. Like that is what the movie is about. Mm. And the reason he shot it on 16 millimeter is because of that, because shooting on film is a dying tradition. So he said, uh, this is a quote from him, when you make a film about recollections and death, you realize that cinema is also facing death. Uncle Boon Me is one of the last pictures shot on film. Now everybody shoots digital. It's my own lamentation. Mm. There's a meta-ness to this as well.
1: I might be kind of digging deeper than I need to, but if you use the language of dying traditions, I feel like that's a little bit of a dual meaning. In that it's the literally the tr- these traditions that people have dying with them, but also this film does highlight traditions around dying.
2: Absolutely, yeah. So there's kind of the yeah the dual meaning to that. Um, I also was reading a little bit about how um, say like a banshee's of an There's a lot going on here on an allegorical level about the history of Thailand um, and its relationship with Laos and um, it's like relationship with communism and war mm. um, that, as someone who doesn't even really know the history of Canada, mm-hmm. um, I'm missing out on. And and I love a film that has all of those layers, and yet you don't require them to appreciate the film. You know, mm-hmm. I think that's really really cool.
1: Yeah, like I kind of when I was kind of searching for some words to describe the film, I just. It, it kind of, I kind of described it as just a, u, a unique take on saying goodbye to one life. Mm. Um, and that just felt so true for so many of the different characters throughout this. And, you know, whether you're, you're the person who is dying or you're losing somebody, you're transitioning into the next life mm-hmm. and what your life looks like after that. And I think this does it. I mean, the fact that one of its subgenres is fantasy is that's such a beautiful medium to and a lens to look at the idea of death and grief and moving on.
2: Well, and I, I loved what he did with this character, the forest spirit, because the first time you see him, it is it is in that like, like that one scene in Parasite <laughs> or that scene in Mahalan Drive where you're just like, holy shit, this is terrifying. And I can't like objectively it's not, but just the like...
1: I think my initial reaction was, oh,
2: Yeah, exactly, right? But then later on it kind of shifts into something different. And I have this quote from the director as well, which I really love. He said, I was old enough to catch the television shows that used to be shot on 16 millimeter film. They were done in studio with strong direct lighting. The lines were whispered to the actors who mechanically repeated them. The monsters were always in the dark to hide the cheaply made costumes. Their eyes were red lights that the audience could spot them. Mm -hmm. So like he's really paying homage to like styles of cinema that, he, that have influenced him and yet the film is completely its own thing. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I just, I loved it. I yeah. loved it and I can't wait to watch uh, the other films that he's made. I can't wait to revisit this. I guess maybe I need to not cancel my movie <laughs> subscription.
1: <laughs> you know, the last thing I'll say about this movie is there's not many films that I can recall where I audibly gasp And there is a moment in this movie and it's so quiet and understated. But it elicited just such a visceral response from me. And I audibly gasped. Because it was just so subtle and so powerful. And I think if a film's able to do that, there's something really special about
2: it. Oh, yeah. The ending of this film really stuck with me. And it was... um, The last thing I'll say about it is it was a great example for me about why you should watch to the end of the credits even at home. Um, Because there's a particular kind of song playing at the end of the film, which feels a little bit different from like the tone of the film. And that eventually fades into something else. Mm -hmm. And like those are purposeful choices that the director made around sound, even into the credit scroll. Mm Mm-hmm. And you're not experiencing the entire film unless you watched the end of the credits because there is stuff going on with sound. And even though the credits are in uh, a language we can't read, um, it's still that experience of like looking at all the labor that went into the film and hearing the sounds and taking some time to reflect. And I just think it's so important. And you're somebody who introduced that tradition into our film watching because it was something that you did and like even if you uh, got stuck in your isolation room forever um, <laughs> you i would continue to do it in <laughs> fact when i went to barbie on my birthday without you big sad all of my friends knew that you don't get up during the credits when you're watching a movie with me <laughs> even though you weren't there
1: it's so great if there's one thing that i'm happy to have imparted onto you is uh, stay till the end of the credits. Yeah, uh, I I 100% agree with you. All of the decisions to the very end of the credits were decisions that were made for a reason. And sound plays such a big role in this film. So dipping out before the end of the credits uh, is a disservice to the full experience of the film. So stay till the end of the credits, no matter what the film, especially this
2: one. Even when you're at home. 100%.
1: And
2: I have to say... There's only two that I can think of, and correct me if I'm wrong, streaming services that don't pop anything up onto the screen but but like allow the credits to just go, and that's movie and criterion mm-hmm. and I think that tells you that those two subscription services are about the films mm-hmm. rather than the bottom line
1: yeah it I can't tell you we've talked a lot about popping your movie bubble as soon as the credits start rolling, and nothing frustrates me more than. The credits, it's barely gone to black. And it's already, it popped up with artwork for some show I don't give two shits about.
2: Especially when it has a countdown to start auto playing and you're like, I lost the fucking remote and I can't find it. And I just want to watch the goddamn credits. Like you and I will often, when that happens, go back in fast forwards so that we can watch the credits. And I just.
1: Like, do I really want my first feeling when I get to the end of a beautiful, powerful film to be panic of where's the fucking remote so that I can just sit and watch the goddamn credits?
2: And I'd be curious to know how often they're successful in having somebody click on that film. So I just I but that made me really appreciate Criterion Channel and Mubi, even Mm -hmm. though this is our free trial of Mubi for the fact that they aren't attempting to get you out of that film and into another they're letting you finish your experience with the film that you watched in fact with criterion channel it just stays on black until you
0: <laughs> yeah
2: like it you have to go out of it so that was something that i'd been thinking about and you know i think if i was paring down our streaming services that would be a point of consideration
1: i am seriously I haven't said this to you, but I am seriously on the fence about keeping Netflix. It's a lot of pee-pee-poo-poo.
2: It is a lot of pee-pee-poo-poo. Anyway. How did Uncle Boon Me, who can recall his past lives, make you feel?
1: An enveloping, uneasy sense of wonder. Wow. How did it make you feel?
2: Made me feel slowly, mesmerizingly moved. Hmm. It was really fantastic. It was a five out of five, and I can't wait to watch it again.
1: Please seek it out if you can.
2: Know that you need patience. But that if you have it, this film will likely do something really special to you.
1: If you can sit through the three-hour Oppenheimer or three-hour Avatar way of water.
2: Then you can watch this.
1: Yeah. Carve out the time. (laughs) It's worth it.
2: All right. You're going to have a mystery movie pick. A lot of mystery movie picks this week because we couldn't go to the theater. Despite having many movies we had wanted to go to in the theater.
1: Uh, I... I thought I was going to get my pee-pee slapped for this one. Um, I'll explain why in a second. But I picked the 2006 biography, drama, history film, Marie Antoinette. It was written and directed by Sofia Coppola. and stars Kirsten Dunst as Marie Antoinette, Jason Schwartzman as Louis XVI, uh, Molly Shannon as Aunt Victoire, and Shirley Henderson, aka Moni Myrtle herself, as Aunt Sophie. Uh, A retelling... Of France's iconic but ill-fated queen, Marie Antoinette, from her betroth- betrothal and marriage to Louis XVI at 14, to her reign as queen at 19, and to the end of her reign as queen and ultimately the fall of Versailles. I forgot she was 14. That is icky.
2: And 19 when she dies. Like...
1: Also awful. Yeah. So the reason I thought I was going to get in trouble is because I picked this... Not really thinking about the fact that our good buddy Ashley, that this is one of her favorite movies and that she would maybe want to watch it with us.
2: And I had never seen it. And she knows that I've never seen it.
1: And, you have. And you brought it up. We were like a minute in. We were on the title card. We paused it so that you could we could get in touch with Ashley. And be like, hey, is it cool if we watch this? Uh, and she was cool with it.
2: Her response was, yes, just tell me if you like it. And also it will make you want to eat pastries.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yes. Okay. Marie Antoinette. What did you think?
2: So this is one that I've always wanted to watch because there's a few people that I I know, Ashley included, who really, really like it. And the poster's really striking. And I've liked one other (laughs) Sofia Coppola film. I I like The Virgin Suicides. Um, But I've just never gotten around to watching it. Now, what was interesting to me is I had thought that this was going to be so much more modernized, like almost like Baz Luhrmann, Great Gatsby, but in Sofia Coppola's style. Mm. And it's, I mean, it is, I I—I think if you were going in thinking it was just a straight biopic, you'd be like, well, that was weird. But I went in thinking it was going to be like so stylized. Mm. And it was much more of a historical biopic than I thought it was going to be.
1: Mm-hmm. Like but. You, you thought it was going to be like the James Acaster, suck it, I'm punk, period piece. Yes, I did. <laughs> but
2: it was kind of more in line with like a The Favourite where we're, hmm. Taking we as if I'm a part of it where the filmmakers are taking some liberties with the way that they interpret these historical events and they're aware that they're doing that which I like right it's not it's not being presented as the singular truth it's saying let's look at these events that are so often told through a tilted lens so that we can consider certain elements in new ways. Mm-hmm. right uh, and and not be so concerned with historical truth but with like rethinking our relationship to historical events yeah um
1: so sorry was this your first time ever seeing it correct wow yeah Cool.
2: it did feel appropriate to watch it before seeing barbie and i it, it's hard to explain why but i think i said in another universe Sophia coppola made barbie Totally. In the multiverse somewhere out there, there's a Barbie movie made by Sofia Coppola. 100%. Yeah. Um, So it just felt like, it felt like a precursor. Like there's a, there's a line somewhere, a squiggly line that connects those movies. Um, Even though I don't know that Greta Gerwig has called it an inspiration, but I think that they're doing some similar things in different ways. Mm. Um, The color palette is gorgeous.
1: Oh, yeah. Overall, the whole movie.
2: Like The Rock, this was filmed in the real place. Like, it was filmed in the Palace of Versailles. Oh, shit. Like, it was, there are shots in the real Marie Antoinette's room.
1: Two movies I would never think would be compared are Marie Antoinette and <laughs> the, the Rock. Rock.
2: <laughs> Somehow we get these connections. It's, uh, I it's, love it. It's wild. So, you know that I'm, there's two things in this movie that should have it going, against the chances of me liking it one is i don't really like biopics or period pieces really
1: good luck oppenheimer
2: (laughs) and i don't really like men so (laughs) really good luck oppenheimer or movies that men are really excited about um (laughs) but as we've seen with like the favorite Mm -hmm. if the period piece is not just about like oh history oh the british um oh the french and it's more about like let's think about history in a critical way and, and, and understand that truth is subjective, even historical truth. And, and we're aware of that. And that's baked into an understanding with the audience. Mm -hmm. I'm into it. Um, this is also about a girl. It's about girlhood. It's about a girl in a particular time in a particular place, less than it is about like the historical events of Marie Antoinette and the queen and king of France. Mm -hmm. Um, and then it like in some ways, it, I, I like a looking at an event from a different perspective. Like I like Wicked. I right. love the Wizard of Oz, but I also like Wicked. I like thinking about like, well, why would the Wicked Witch of the West be like this?
0: Mm-hmm.
2: You know, I, I like that. So it kind of felt like that Wicked, but history. Mm. <laughs> now, the other thing I really hate, we've talked about this before is a film set in another country, particularly when it's like historically relevant for it to be set in that country where the actors don't speak the language of the country because Marie Antoinette would not have been speaking English in an American accent throughout the film. Now, the reason I was okay with it is because this film isn't meant to be taken as historical truth. Mm -hmm. And in fact, everybody in the film just speaks in their regular accent, Mm -hmm. right? So there's British people and French people and Americans and Canadians. Molly Shan's Canadian, right? I don't know. Thought she was. Could be wrong. Um, and they're just speaking in their regular accents, and it's not doing a like the reader thing of English speaking actors in a film set in Germany speaking English in a German accent. And then we're giving them like little clap clap claps for mastering a German accent. Yeah, and or, I'm like, what the heck?
1: Or see Chernobyl?
2: Yeah, like the- I don't love that. I don't love it. Yeah. So, but that didn't bother me here because it felt like there's an aesthetic to this film and an intentional artifice to dig at a deeper truth. Mm-hmm. I've just talked a
1: lot. No, that's that's good. I don't actually have a lot of notes on this, but uh, I agree with everything that you said. That you said. Um, I think that this is. Extremely well acted, specifically by Kristen Dunst, and I—I I really like Jason Schwartzman.
2: He is a perfect little piss boy in those. I
1: love him being a little piss boy. And you know what? Forgetting that in fact Marie Antoinette when I was fourteen, died when she was nineteen. I don't know how old Louis the Sixteenth was, but the a big plot point is that like the whole country just wants these two to have sex and have a baby. I I. I can understand not wanting to have sex with a 14-year-old if that's, in fact, a part of why he didn't do it.
2: I mean, it seems like he just wanted to go hunting with his boys, but...
1: Yeah, but that that whole thing... This this does a, such a, a good commentary, which I think is done a little bit better in Catherine Called Birdie, which we reviewed more recently, but it's just this look at... The systems that were in place around marriage and having children, and the traditions, fucked up or not, that just were perpetuated.
2: Marriage is a prison.
1: One hundred percent.
2: Louis the sixteenth was fifteen. Uh, so there's babies
1: that all of the country are just like, you two, hurry up, babies.
2: So, so, and I mean, this is like, this was, um, Sophia Coppola's goal with this is to remind people that she was a girl. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, so I have a quote from Sophia Coppola where she says, my goal was to capture in the design, the way in which I imagined the essence of Marie Antoinette's spirit. So the film's candy colors, it's atmosphere and teenage music all reflect and are meant to evoke how I saw the world from her perspective. Mm. And then on the question of like the truth of history, um, this is from Wikipedia, which is a lot more reliable than IMDb trivia. Um, Coppola suggests that her highly stylized interpretation was intentionally very modern in order to humanize the historical figures involved. She admitted taking great artistic liberties with the source material and said that the film does not focus simply on historical fa- facts. It is not a lesson of history. It is an interpretation documented but carried by her desire for covering the subject differently.
1: Hmm. I didn't think about that, the fact that... Because the music rips in this. Oh, yeah. Um, but I didn't think about the connection that the music is the kind of music a young person would listen to. And it does in retrospect, accent the youth and immaturity of Marie Antoinette in a very girls just want to have fun kind of way.
2: And the other thing um chatting with a couple of my friends who really like this movie is they said that like this movie seems like it would be really fun, but it's actually kind of lonely. Yeah. Like she's really lonely. Like she's, Separated from her family, she's got this pres- pressure from her mother back home to, like, be the queen and consummate her marriage and have a baby. And she's got this pressure from her, like, the people of France. Um,
1: and, like, be f- be friends with the king's mistress.
2: Yeah, like, all this political like- stuff she doesn't really understand. And then she's not even connected with, like, her new husband. And there's these parallel scenes on a balcony um, at two different points in the movie that I think really highlight the loneliness mm. of the figure of Marie Antoinette, and thinking of her as this like girl who's been displaced from her home with all this pressure put on her. I think Sophia Coppola did a really good job in like just asking viewers to think about that part of it. Um, and, and how that might connect to like our modern understandings of girlhood and the pressures put on, on girls and, and women, um, and I also thought the ending was really sad. Like, I it, it it didn't end the way I thought it would end, and I mm-hmm. and I thought it was a really powerful ending. Yeah. So I I liked it a lot more than I both more and differently than I thought I would.
1: Yeah, I haven't revisited this many times. I think the first time I watched it, a teacher threw it on in social class.
2: Weird. Just I don't. I even... mean, not weird if you if you have the, the conversations we just had. But I doubt you did.
1: No, I, I very much think it was like, I'm putting this on because I need time to mark stuff. Yes. <laughs> so we didn't have any conversations about it. And then I feel like I've only revisited it once before this week. Uh, and it was years and years ago. So it was really great to revisit it. And this is a period piece I quite enjoy. It has a lot of the elements I quite like that, that lead me to liking things like A Night's Tale, Catherine Called Birdie. And other things like that.
2: I watched A Night Tale once with a friend who was obsessed with Heath Ledger and I did not like it, but maybe I need to give it another go.
1: I haven't seen it in a long time. It might be pee-pee-poo-poo, but I just remember it being really stupid, silly fun.
2: Stupid, silly fun. It will, this movie will make you want pastries. Oh my God. And that is a very sad thing when it's your birthday week and you don't really want to go out and get pastries to eat by yourself because your partner is sick and can't even taste anything. Um. So big shout out to my sister who does not listen to this podcast. Who dropped off Nanaimo bars, which is one of my favorite desserts. I think they're vegan Nanaimo bars, uh, which is great. And and I've been uh, not totally pastryless. I don't think that's a pastry. Totally dessertless throughout this time. <laughs> I have one little piece of trivia before we cap our conversation. There's this scene in the movie where Marie Antoinette is being serenaded, and you were like quite uh we had a little like funny quip about it do you know who she was being serenaded by hmm. the band phoenix
1: oh man listomania
2: that used to be your ringtone when you called me actually might still be but i just never have my phone and volume on do you know why it was phoenix mm, no sophia couple is married to the lead singer oh no, shit yeah thomas mars is that his name yeah yeah so she's married to him oh so trivia mostly trivia for for you elliot because you like Phoenix There you go. Cute cute little cute little insider information.
1: Damn. There you go. Sophia Coppola likes French stuff.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Phoenix is a French band. Yeah.
1: And, Indeed. Indeed. And this is a this is French.
2: True. French, yep.
1: She loves it. I was thinking about this. Uh this is just a tangent now. In this alternate universe where Sophia Coppola made Barbie. It's French. And I feel like Barbie could be Kristen Dunst. I also think it could be Scarlett Johansson. Hmm. Because of like lost in translation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> in that in that case, then Ken would be Billberry.
2: <laughs> Ken would be Jason Schwartzman. No I No, Alan would be Jason Schwartzman. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs>
1: totally. Oh man. Yeah, okay. How did Marie Antoinette make you feel?
2: It made me feel surprised at the tone and moved by the empathetic historical viewpoint. Mm -hmm. How did it make you feel?
1: It gave me a serious craving for cake. (laughs) (laughs) So deep. (laughs) Let me eat
2: it. Okay, the next movie is a movie. I want to, I, so it was the Wednesday that everybody was going to like the Barbie blowout bash and I was feeling some like real FOMO. And my birthday was the next, going to be the next day and I was, you know, worried that I was going to get sick and not be able to go out. Um, and I wanted to watch something weird. Like I really wanted to watch something in like the house kind of genre where it's like it's horror and it's maybe got some like gory-ish sequences, but it's also fun. And I'd seen this movie on like a lot of lists of people I follow and people really liked it. So I picked the movie V. Uh, it's from 1967. It's a drama horror fantasy, which sounds like what I was looking for. It was directed by Konstantin Urshav and Georgi Kropachev and written by the two of them and Nikolai Gogol. It's a Russian film. Um, it stars Leonid Kuralyov as Koma and Natalia Varley as Panochka. And I didn't put anybody else because there's a whole lot of men just like running around the movie. But those are kind of our two main people. Hmm. The synopsis is a young priest is ordered to preside over the wake of a witch in a small old wooden church of a remote village. This means spending three nights alone with the corpse with only his faith to protect him. That also sounds really good, Mm -hmm. but this didn't end up being what I wanted it to be. What did you think of the, (laughs)
1: uh, I knew nothing about this movie and I agree with you. It, It, it has all of the ingredients of being really, really fun and funky and having the horror elements that I like. And it's it's aesthetically appealing. I mean, we've mentioned multiple times on their show, our love for the 60s and the cinema coming out of the 60s. It has a lot of that kind of vibe to it. But yeah, it just it didn't fully get there for me. Especially by the time we get to the end. What I did like about it, though, is the the kind of paranormal activity uh, structure of like, this is night one, this is night two, yeah. this is night three. I I like that because it's like, oh man, it's just, it's ramping up. What's going to happen? Uh, night three is pretty wild.
2: I mean, yeah, that was the thing about it. When it, when it does have like the more horror moments, these like key scenes and particularly like the, the end of the movie mm-hmm. or like night three, um, It was exactly what I wanted it to be. Yeah. And it was like weird and it had like really great practical effects that were like really unsettling and like playing with tempo and size. And and I thought that was really great. And it made me like appreciate its place in the canon and like how some filmmakers that we've seen that, that we really love their films were likely inspired by this movie. Mm hmm. But the overall film was a little bit too like pastoral for me. There was too much of the he's in the village, mm-hmm. just like scared and not enough in the church with the corpse. Yeah. <laughs> um, but then I, when I watch it and I think, imagine seeing this in 1967 would have mm-hmm. blown your mind.
1: Yeah. I, I agree with you, though, like watching it now, especially through the lens of us having watched some really incredible witch stuff. I mean, through Suspiria, through the witch, through the love witch and stuff like that, which just feels like it does it a little bit better and focuses on the quote unquote right stuff. For me, that just resonates and works really well, especially when telling witch centered stories. Yeah, this was pastoral's a good word. Like, get it, get me away from all these piss boy monks that I've that I hated from the <laughs> very beginning of little the little mushroom cats. <laughs> I, I hated them so much, and you never grow to like them. <laughs> At least I didn't. Yeah, and there is some creepy stuff here, and there is unsettling stuff, but it just it, it it just overall all right for me.
2: Yeah, I felt the same way. Like I would rewatch that night three scene like on YouTube or whatever. Yeah. Um. And I'm glad you mentioned The Love Witch because watching this just made me want to re-watch that. Mm-hmm. So I appreciate how The Love Witch is a modern film that's paying homage to films like this. And I so appreciate what this film was doing at its time, but I would never watch it again.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm grateful if this film led any filmmakers late that came later to get to some of the things that I mentioned that I love a lot more when it comes to this kind of storytelling. I'm grateful for that, but yeah, I'll just revisit the greatest hits on YouTube if I ever get a craving for it.
2: And one thing to mention just before we move on, I don't have a lot more to say about this. I think if you're looking to just have seen a lot of Canon film and, you know, particularly like, if you're a horror fan and then there's like subgenres of horror, if one of the ones you really like is like, which stuff I would watch it just to like have the historical mm. canon of it. Um, and I also think it's good to watch films throughout the decades and, and from other countries. That leads me to something that was really frustrating, which is there was three services that we have access to that had this movie on it. And two of them only had a dubbed version. Mm -hmm. And I got confused at first because I'm like, is this just a suspicious situation where it was always overdubbed in English? I'm like, but I just don't think that's true because the opening credits are in Russian. Mm -hmm. Like the, the writing is not English. And so we looked it up online and sure enough, like, no, the original language is Russian. So shutter doesn't have a way to watch it in its original language with English subtitling then AMC Plus doesn't have a way to watch it in Russian. So would you believe, and I know you will, Elliot, but you, the listener, would you believe that the place that had it in its original Russian language with English subtitling was Tubi? (laughs) Yeah. So Tubi came in clutch because I was like, I'm not watching this dubbed. Mm
0: -hmm. I'm just
2: not. (laughs) Like Mm -hmm. It's already too distracting. No, I'm not doing it. Um, So we had to watch it with a couple ads, but there weren't that many, No, to be honest. There was like one right when you started, and then I think just... One other one that was like less than thirty seconds. Mm-hmm. Um, so thank you, Tubi, for having the OG language. And I, I wish that if Shutter didn't have it, they at least made it clear what the original language was. Yeah, like made it clear that you are watching a dubbed version.
1: Mm-hmm. So watch it on Tubi or not Tubi.
2: That is the <laughs> surface. Okay, what did you think of the? Uh, just an
1: overall, an overall just okayness about it. Like I said, grateful if it paved the path for any of this stuff I like more. How make you feel?
2: Let down while enjoying a few key scenes.
1: Undo. Okay. My mystery movie pick. I chose the twenty eleven horror mystery thriller, The Cabin in the Woods. Uh, We were talking about this recently and I think it was still top of mind. So I'm like, I want to revisit this sucker. It was directed by Drew Goddard and written by P.P. Poo Poo, Joss Whedon, and Drew Goddard. It stars Kristen Connolly as Dana, Chris Hemsworth as Kurt, Anna Hutchison as Jules, Fran Kranz, famous director, writer-director of the movie Mass, which we just covered, uh, Jesse Williams as Holden, Richard Jenkins as Sitterson, and Bradley Woodford as Hadley. Synopsis: five friends go for a break at a remote cabin where they get more than they bargained for, discovering the truth behind The Cabin in the Woods. What do you think of Cabin in the Woods?
2: We've seen this a few times. Yeah. Um, we saw it in the theater together. And when we saw this in the theater, it blew my mind. Like, I thought it was the greatest thing ever. I also used to be a really big fan of Joss Whedon. Mm-hmm. Like, I um, quite like Buffy the Vampire Slayer mm-hmm. and finally got you to watch it in 2020 when we had nothing else to do and and you liked it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, I think somewhere along the way I got snobby and thought this wasn't that good. Mm-hmm. And then we rewatched it and I was like, no, it's pretty good. <laughs>
1: Well, yeah, it was funny. We were watching it and we have rewatched it multiple times since originally seeing it. And you had said to me while we were watching it that I had said that I didn't really like it last time we watched it. And then hearing that, I think like both of us had, I don't know, something stuck in our craw about it for some reason. And then when it wrapped this time, I was like, I don't know what was up my butt, but I really like this movie. Yeah, it's. <laughs>
2: I mean, I don't think anything compares to the first time you see it, mm-hmm. um, if you, especially if you don't know a lot about it. If you are a horror fan, this is one of those movies that has the horror stuff. Like it's got some really great legitimate horror sequences, mm-hmm. but it is just so fun. And it does that thing of taking the piss out of the genre
0: mm-hmm.
2: while loving the genre at the same time. Right. Which is so important. I think there's I know there's so many marginalized folks, underrepresented folks, queer folks, folks of color who love horror. And yet there's a real history of racism, misogyny, homophobia in horror Mm -hmm. over sexualization of women. Right. And so this film takes the piss out of some of that. Mm -hmm. Um, Race definitely isn't a part of it. Um, So I can't wait to watch the blackening I'm so disappointed at how short short of a run it had in theaters I didn't think I was going to run out of time to watch it or I would have we would have made it more of a priority um but I love how it's able to critique those things and yet also be like but we do love the genre and we need to move the genre forward Mm -hmm. like there's I love a meta critique I yeah I just I I do Mm -hmm. I know some people think it's overdone but I love it Um, and it's just so fun. It's just so fun. It's like what you want from a, like, as the title says, cabin in the woods movie, Mm -hmm. while also having some like fun critique in it.
1: Yeah. It's a, a a horror fans funhouse.
2: Absolutely. That's a great way to describe it.
1: It's just so locked in on the genre and the tropes that make it great and make it complicated and complex and how to both poke fun at those things like you're saying, but also celebrate them. And I remember, yeah, I remember the first time seeing this. It was such a trip, and it was kind of fun. I want to tell this quick story, so we saw it. I don't remember us seeing it together, but no doubt 2011, we were already together. We went and saw it.
2: I also don't remember us seeing this together, but it seems like we would have.
1: But do you know what I do remember is, at the time, I was working at the Apple store, and I was just meeting a bunch of new people, and once you join an Apple team, everyone's just kind of drank the Kool-Aid and everyone's just like wants to be friends with each other. So there's a few people that I started hanging out with and I was hanging out with this one guy that we had a, a lot of <laughs> common interests and we met up and had got lunch together. And then I'm like, do you want to go see Cabin in the Woods? And he's like, I'm not really a horror person, but I guess so. So him, had you already seen
2: it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay.
1: So him and I went on a little date to go see Cabin in the Woods.
2: Who was this?
1: What was his name?
2: <laughs> you don't even know.
1: I can't. Did remember he like it? His name. I think he thought it was all right. <laughs> I could tell that he wasn't a massive fan.
2: This is me wanting to see Barbie for the third time with my mom and my sisters because I went with literally all of my friends on my birthday. And then we saw it, and now I have nobody else to (laughs) show it to. Maybe I'll just go by myself.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, (laughs) But I I, just—I remember thinking that was such a fun thing. Like that's why I'm so grateful for what we have, because I feel like I went on when when I was single for a very short time in between high school. And us getting together, I went on a couple of dates and I took them to movies and they just like weren't movie people. And what a bummer. My God.
2: (laughs) And I will always say I'm particularly grateful that we both like horror. 100%.
1: Because
2: man, and something really fun about this movie is I feel like it was on our radar because I liked Joss Whedon. and I think you did too. Like,
1: I knew the name, I hadn't seen a lot. Well, of yeah, I guess stuff. he hadn't
2: made Avengers yet, but I liked him, and like I had seen Dollhouse, and I've never seen Firefly, but um, ju- had he made Doctor Horrible's Sing Along Blog by that point?
1: And you had shown me that, and I was like, "Hey, that's cool." And I think Drew Drew Goddard, he did he do anything that I had seen Cloverfield? No. No, he did 10 Cloverfield Lane, which was way later. So, yeah, even Drew Goddard wasn't a name that I was like. Yeah, I
2: think this was probably a me being like, oh, I like Joss Whedon, right? Um yeah.
1: Oh, did you know Drew Goddard was executive producer on The Good Place? I didn't. There you go.
2: Checks out, honestly, with like I see the connection between this film and that. But there are so many people in this who then went on to do other things that we really liked. Um, we don't watch Grey's Anatomy anymore, but there was a long period of time where we really, like we were not giving up on Grey's Anatomy. And Jesse Williams is Dr. Jackson Avery. Um, Wee Woo. And Chris Hemsworth wasn't Thor yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Bradley Whitford hadn't been in Get Out yet. Like there's just so many people who are in this, Cran Crans hadn't made maths yet.
1: (laughs) The only person I really knew was Richard Jenkins, who I'd seen in a few things at this point.
2: (laughs) He's also done some like things that we really like post this movie. So it's just really cool to have seen this at the time. And then also to have seen some of these people go on to being things that are really successful or that we really love and then go back and watch it and be like, they're so baby (laughs)
0: like
2: they're so new in their careers. And it's just really cool. Uh, Joss Whedon is also playing with a lot of the cast that he usually uses. Um, Like many of these people were in shows that he made. He likes to do that, especially some of the more background characters in the lab who we didn't name in the cast, but uh, they're in Buffy and things like that. So Mm. Um, yeah, it's just fun. It is fun in the way that like until Dawn and the quarry are fun. Yeah, And I think this as a video game in that style would be so fun Mm. where all those fun Easter eggs for horror fans that happen later in the film. If like you could play different versions of this out Mm. with like depending on what the characters pick would be so fun.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It'd be really good because, yeah, I was saying while we were watching this or after it ended that you could take the the world and the logic and the background that's that's developed in this film and the and what they do with the horror genre and you could apply it to any and all movies all horror movies that exist and it's fun to think of it that way that this the cabin in the woods world applies to all horror movies
2: and i mean if you think about the people in the lab as the Directors, mm-hmm. and you think of the thing that shall not be named as the audience. Yeah, right. Um, I think it's really compelling, and then and then there's even like a, a sense of like cultural, but spe- like the understanding of horror as a culturally specific thing. And I am so fascinated. I know I've talked on the show about it before about horror as a way to track like cultural um, and national unease. Mm-hmm. So like you know as Vampire horror films become more popular during the AIDS epidemic. As um, zombie and apocalyptic things become more popular, as the world becomes more aware of climate change, right? Like these things are so endlessly fascinating to me. And this film has a light, like it's it's light and it's fun, but understanding of that.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I don't want to gloss over. I just want to go back to your video game idea. <laughs> Trademark Bad Dead (laughs) Rat Dead because that's a really good idea of, yeah, one of those kind of choose your own adventure horror games. Because those two games, they're not incredible, but they're really, really fun. I think
2: they're incredible.
1: They're really, really fun. Um, So
2: disappointing when you make it to the end and then die.
1: Well, but like also the thing is the replayability on those games is very limited. This yes, is that? true,
2: but I feel like it's replayable in the way that, like, watching a movie like this is rewatchable, where, wherein, you might want to take a long break from it. But I feel like I'd be ready to play until dawn again now because it's been so long that I don't really remember it.
1: True, but I feel like it, with a cabin in the woods kind of thing, you could oh, you endlessly
2: c- replayable.
1: Well, you could because there's so many different paths that you could take and things you could encounter. And you could just keep adding patches and DLC to it of new paths and adventures because that that sort of story just lends itself so well to that. It's a brilliant really idea, babe. Thanks. That's all I'll say.
2: I'm also I'm all about the connections this week, every week, but this week in particular. Would you like an Oppenheimer connection?
1: <laughs> sure.
2: So, you know, I don't want to say too much about the specifics of the film, but the film does start in a lab type setting, a sciency type setting. So Drew Goddard was inspired to make this movie in this particular way with that element by his life growing up in New Mexico where he saw researchers and scientists just going about their life normally and yet he knew and they knew that every day they were working on nuclear weapons Mm. and he found that like disturbing that like they could just live so normally while working on these things that could destroy the world Mm. Um, and that's part of where his inspiration for this came from. And like, and the attitude of of Bradley Whitford and Richard Jenkins.
1: That's interesting. It is, isn't it? And like, that's the thing that I'm most curious and interest intrigued about with Oppenheimer, is just this ex- exploration of like how fucked up this thing that this man created is.
2: I mean, I think it goes there. I've I've uh, Letterbox put out a cute little like interviewing people who were doing Barbenheimer. And I was looking at the comments and people, a lot of people said they wish they had done Barbie first because Oppenheimer is so dark. I've heard. And they couldn't appreciate Barbie because they were in a bad headspace.
1: I've both heard and seen through people I follow on Letterboxd and online that just like they walk out of, like people are just walking out of Oppenheimer kind of dead faced. Not feeling good. And they just, they've had to delay writing reviews (laughs) and expressing what their feelings are because they're just like jesus christ i mean we're doing in theory a double feature the day we're seeing oppenheimer it's not barbie but we'll see
2: we'll see how it goes
1: um last couple things i'll say is i still think for something that came out over 10 years ago this movie still looks really good
2: yeah. I mean, there's definitely CGI at parts, but I think it's done well.
1: I agree. Because the CGI is so fantastical, like the, yeah. the things that are CGI are fantastical, that it it, it just it works. works.
2: And it's mixed with practical, right? It's not all CGI mm-hmm. or all practical. It's, it's a, a mixture of the two where appropriate. And, you know, there's a particular uh, really funny moment with bradley whitford and a practical effect (laughs) yes which i guess is often cited as people's favorite part of the film from when they did test screenings and i think that was great to go practical there yeah um and i think they do that really well and it's caused it to age well
0: yeah and
2: you know the tropes it's looking at whether we start to move past them or not they're still the 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 grounding tropes of like a halloween and a Texas Chainsaw Massacre and uh, like that's not going to go away that these are the things that started the horror genre.
1: Yeah and you know I think that there's things on this viewing I was able to enjoy a lot more having you know having now seen and enjoyed Buffy I see the Whedonisms of the things that I liked from Buffy pop up here. Uh, I I really really liked Fran of this mostly because I'm like Holy shit, this guy made Bass, which is so, such a departure from this tonal, tonally and story, story, storytelling wise. But I, I really particularly like Frank Kranz on this viewing. Um, yeah, th- this is great. I'll keep watching this forever. <laughs> it's just, it's really fun when you're, you, you don't want to go necessarily full horror. You want to have a little bit of comedy, a little bit of fun. It's that right in that sweet spot. How'd it make you feel?
2: Uh, it makes me feel a gratitude for this fun ode to horror fans.
1: hmm
2: How does it make you feel?
1: It fills this little horror fanboy with so much joy.
2: All right, last movie. Um, this was another... We were going to go see it in the theater. And while we could go see it in the theater, like, if you're masking up, you're, you're good to go out now. But... It just, you know, I think still minimizing the amount that we're out and about. It was late. And it was a late show, and we're we're not quite ready to get back in the swing of late night stuff yet. Um, So we watched it at home, and one day we'll see it in the theater. Uh, We saw Wild at Heart, 1990 comedy, crime, drama, and I would think romance, but apparently not according to IMDb. uh, Film directed and written by David Lynch. It was a David Lynch film that neither of us had seen. Before, so it's exciting to to be getting closer to having seen all of his feature films, and it was based on the novel by Barry Gifford. It stars Nicolas Cage,
1: he's new, back, baby. new
2: Lynch alum, but also our second Nicolas Cage of the week.
1: Book ending end the week with, with the, a
2: Nick Cage,
1: with the cage-ter.
2: Uh He plays the character Sailor. Laura Dern, um, or tidbit, um, a Lynch regular, regular uh, plays Lula. Willem Dafoe, who feels like he was born to be in Lynch films, but this is the first one we've seen him in, and I think it's the only one he is in, uh, plays Bobby Peru, and Diane Ladd plays Marietta Fortune. <laughs> the synopsis for this movie is young lovers, Sailor and Lula, run from the variety of weirdos that Lula's mom has hired to kill Sailor. <laughs> what did you think of Wild at Heart?
1: This is the second Palme d'Or winner that we watched this week, and it won it the year we were born. Look, look at us 20, 23, 33 years later. Um, this was truly wild. Uh, I just really enjoy what I felt watching this was I just really enjoy the unpredictability in the worlds of David of David Lynch. I just did not know where this story was going. What 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 it was going to happen next. There are some very hilarious things that happen in this movie and some very hilarious things that are said. There's also some very upsetting stuff that happens in this movie, as you could come to expect from a David Lynch movie. Uh, he pulled a lot of favors from his Twin Peaks crew at this Absolutely. time. Absolutely, So many people. Cast and crew. Yeah, no doubt. Um, But this was just a... I felt that this was a truly animated batch of characters and it was, I feel like that's kind of indicative of this era of Lynch's career.
2: Yeah, this is, it's interesting to watch um, following like what Metro had curated their Land of Lynch series um, to watch Blue Velvet and Wild at Heart at home, but like in tandem with what they were playing in the theater. Um, because they feel like kind of two sides of the same coin. Like Blue Velvet feels like the hereditary to Wild at Hearts Midsommar. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And obviously those came first, so maybe flip it and reverse it. Um, (laughs) But they are both films that deal kind of firmly in the world of the real. And like any surreality is just like artistic and not actually surreal for the characters within the film. um, In both of them. But this one is more kind of lighthearted throughout mm-hmm. um, and kind of punctuated with moments of darkness, whereas Blue Velvet is more of a book-ended light and, and then dark throughout the middle. Yeah. Um, and neither of them are my favorite.
1: No. No, I, I agree with that. You know, you mentioned a subgenre that wasn't mentioned being romance. This kind of feels like, This feels like David Lynch's True Romance.
2: 100%. When we were watching this, and True Romance came out later, right? Uh, I think, yeah, yeah, yeah. mid to... Like, I feel like it came out significantly after this. In 1993. So this comes out first. And I mean, I haven't seen like Natural Born Killers, which I think has some similar things going on. But I was like, oh, this is the same kind of idea as True Romance. Like two young lovers who are just obsessed with each other and they're just getting themselves into dangerous situations but they love each other and that's what matters and then there's all this violence in between but the core of the story is like the wild sexy love between these two characters right (laughs) and i think i like this more than true romance
1: yeah and i think now having watched true romance true romance more recently I would revisit *Wild at Heart* more yeah. often than *True
2: Romance*. Like *True Romance*, it has a couple moments where I'm like, "Oh, that's dated in terms of its like language use." Yeah, unfortunately, and and it's got a lot of boobies, too many boobs for me. And like yeah. I've I've seen most of David Lynch's films, and he certainly has erotic moments. He certainly has sex. There definitely is a lot of violence against women in his movies, although um like it often feels like a critique of that like looking at that but this one I was just like oh, a lot of a lot of nudity
1: yeah and i mean laura dern is super babyly but she also like she's the mvp of this movie i love there's just so many moments of her going going beyond 10 like going to 10 and then taking the next step in terms of performing and overperforming and that's those are the kinds of things I like when Lynch pulls those out of his actors of just go like I'm thinking in Mulholland Drive, the scene where they're when it's all of the filmmakers and like Justin Thoreau around the table and the guy drinking the coffee and it just goes off the rails. And I love that he pulls a little bit of that from Laura Dern in this and then he also just implores Nick Cage to just be Nick Cage. Yeah,
2: Nick Cage in a Lynch film. Real good real fun like Nicolas Cage is ridiculous in this and it's really a ride that I enjoyed I have a quote from David Lynch that I like
1: mm-hmm. about this or just about a- this okay no, about
2: this. Um, so he said that uh, this movie to him is a really modern romance in a violent world a picture about finding love in hell um, and he was attracted to a certain amount of fear in the picture as well as things to dream about and so it, according to him, seems truthful in some way.
1: <laughs> yeah, truthful in some way.
2: Um, yeah, sure.
1: Uh, I get it.
2: But it's, yeah, it's focused on that idea of love.
1: Yeah. Uh, I Speaking of going to 10 and then going beyond, <laughs> Laura Dern's freaking mom in this was just such a fun diabolical mess to watch unravel over the course of the film. There's a whole bit with lipstick that's just insane.
2: <laughs> oh, yeah, it was like, I don't know, even though this wasn't my favorite Lynch thing I've ever seen, it still had those moments where I'm like, that image,
0: Whew. yeah,
2: that image, and it, you know, I hate to keep harping on this, because we did this when we watched Blue Velvet too, but it just made me want to watch Twin Peaks, because Twin Peaks is one of my favorite things I've ever seen in my entire life, and I was like, Blue Velvet and and Wild at Heart, kind of put those together and then add surreal supernatural nightmare logic. And now you've got what it is about Lynch that connects with me. Mm-hmm. Um And even like these more grounded films and they're not all that grounded. Right? Wild at Heart is super campy and Blue Velvet is super weird, but they're, but they exist in the real world and there's mm-hmm. no nightmare, no, um, supernatural no questioning of reality in it right um but Twin Peaks has that it has the lightheartedness of Wild at Heart and the goofiness through Dale Cooper and and some of the other characters it has the blue velvety stuff through the mystery of Laura Palmer's murder and kind of how that turns into kind of an underground thing as we uncover what was going on in her life but then it's also got the red room and all of the like backwards talking and and just Horrific imagery and owls and logs and I just want to watch it.
1: (laughs) Yeah, Twin Peaks is one of those. It just feels like it's one of those rare things of how is this on television? I equate it to like Hannibal, of like how is this on network TV? Yes, yeah. This seems nuts. I I desperately want to rewatch Twin Peaks.
2: We have four more seasons of Taskmaster, and then we will.
1: (laughs) Um. I mean, a couple of other things to note. Willem Dafoe, big nasty in this.
2: Big, big nasty.
1: Um, but it was interesting because, you know, we mentioned we haven't seen this before, but we, a couple of weeks ago, we went to that documentary that we mentioned, uh, Lynch Oz, where it was just kind of a bunch of vignettes from different directors speaking about and speculating on the connection between David Lynch and his work with The Wizard of Oz. And we had seen they had quite a few clips from Wild at Heart in the documentary. So yeah. there are some things I was already anticipating. But this, more than any other work that I've seen, draws the most blatant line and is the most on yeah, the nose. It's
2: overt, with, like in terms of imagery and um, dialogue that like specifically reference. There's no mistaking it. The Wizard was.
1: Yeah. Um, so I think that's just an interesting angle and having watched that documentary and known more of the connections, not just within Wild at Heart, but throughout Lynch and all of his work, uh, there's just a, a little little cherry on top to have that knowledge going into watching this for the first time. But Yeah, uh, I agree with you. Not my f- absolute favorite thing that he's ever done and just. Maybe you <laughs> really want to rewatch Twin Peaks sometime soon.
2: How did Wild at Heart make you feel?
1: At the end of it all, I was a hundred percent along for the wild ride. How'd it make you feel?
2: Made me feel it can't be fun even if it isn't an all-time lunch favorite.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: All right, let's talk about dads. Who's your bad dad?
1: Dads of the week, baby. I went with Bobby Peru. So did I. Nice. Yeah, nasty Willem Dafoe from Wild at Heart. Uh, pff, I, I just wrote down three things. Deplorable, nasty, gross.
2: <laughs> I wrote down three things. Double crossing, abusive, gross.
1: Bobby Peru, don't, <laughs> don't be, be our dad.
2: <laughs> okay, rad dad, who's your favorite possum?
1: Uh I I picked Marty.
2: So but, did I. Oh nice. Well oh, then we very rarely have a double agree.
1: Hell yeah. Uh why Marty?
2: Uh he's a critical thinker, mm-hmm. even when he's really high. Um, he's moral, like he is a person with his own understanding of what's right and wrong but also forgiving and like willing to listen to other people. And I love in watching this one and like knowing where the movie goes that like he's, he calls people out like he he's like, that's weird. Why are you acting like this? Because yeah. he like knows them, you know? And I think that, that that's a real dad trait to be like, you're not acting like yourself. Who are who are you trying to impress? And I think sometimes we need people to do that, to be like you, I do this sometimes, right? I, I, I want to be friends with that person. They seem real cool. So I act a little different than I normally do and that's not true to who I am. Hmm. And I love that Marty just you know, it's he's one,
1: that. one of my favorite moments in the movie that I look forward to every time is that moment with Marty just delivering that piece of dialogue. <laughs> Cuz it's just so he is just the voice of reason.
2: Even yeah. though he's like totally <laughs> blitzed the yeah. whole time.
1: <laughs> um but he's smart and he's perceptive and determined and willing to sift through any of the BS and he can sniff, he can sniff out when things aren't right. That's what you want. Like you just want a parent that's perceptive uh, and get cut through the BS, you know?
2: And yet it's pretty fun and goofy too.
1: And can write and direct an amazing dramatic movie after being the stoner in Cabin in the Woods.
2: <laughs> exactly. Who doesn't want that from their parent? Yeah. <laughs> All right. So Marty, be your dad. dad.
1: Okay. Before we get out of here, Rad Wreck of the Week, we just finished watching The Bear Season 2. For us, up here in Canada, the whole season just dropped on Disney+. And let me tell you, I could not express the amount of FOMO that I had when this aired on Hulu for everybody else in the States. And just hearing how incredible this season was and all of the praise and all of the good things about it, I mean... I'm pretty sure we rad wrecked the first season when it came out because it was incredible. Oh,
2: yeah. This show is it's really special.
1: Yeah, because it's doing something where everybody to their own degree is a likable person. It's not like a succession or a Breaking Bad or a Mad Men or something like that. There's complex. There's complexities to everyone, even if they are, quote unquote, a bad person.
2: Yeah. And they're not perfect. Right. So. You get to see that um, throughout, and I really, really love that.
1: Yeah, so this season was just an improvement. I feel like they got a big budget boost given the music Mm -hmm. and the freaking cameos that are throughout this season, Uh, so buckle up. But the, the story arc this season is incredibly strong. Some of the character... So the character stories and threads throughout this are so beautiful and heartbreaking and complex, but just overall super well executed.
2: It's impressive. I like to lounge when I watch things like I'm real like laid back or like on my side. And there's a point in the finale where I like sat up and literally leaned in Mm -hmm. and I cried a bunch and I gasped a bunch and it's just a really special show
1: really is so can't recommend it enough if you haven't seen season one definitely watch that before we watch season two <laughs> uh, and then for sure watch season two of the bear excellent stuff thank you so much for listening we drop a new episode every thursday until then you can follow us inside to our dms on instagram and threads at, da- at, oh, at dad you can also get a sneak peek of what we've been watching on our individual letterboxd accounts usernames are in the show notes. And please, 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 we would absolutely love you forever if you could share us with rad people in your life and drop us a rating, review or follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever the heck you're listening from.
2: Don't forget, we've got our Barbenheimer exclusive, slight spoiler talk in a handful of days on Sunday.
1: The Barbenheimer is here. It's real. Get into it. That's going to do it for these cake eaters this week. So until next time.
2: I'm Kylie, and my dad's dead.
1: I'm Elliot. My dad's a deadbeat. But remember, not all dads have to be bad. (laughs)